everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, discussing and debating the iconic and the forgotten of 80s and 90s pop culture, with your co-hosts, James D. Graves and Jason Colvin. Welcome, everybody. We are here for part two of the Nevermind and 10 comparison. I am here with my buddy, Jason. What's up, D? How you doing, man? I'm doing awesome. Wearing my flannel shirt, my <laughs> knee-length shorts, and my combat boots. I'm about to do a stage dive right now, right into the <laughs> middle of this podcast. You know, you talked when we did Def Leppard about been waiting 35 years to do this. This is one of those ones that I'd love to talk to anybody about anytime. It's been neat to do the deep dive into this and learn all this stuff. This was one of those albums growing up. I might have listened to this album from beginning to end more than any other album that I've ever listened to. That's cool. I, I'm excited to get into it. That, that was hysteria for me. If I had a clicker every time I listened to it, that would be my, the highest one for me. That and Thriller probably. So In our research, I read that this was ranked like number 207 out of best albums by Rolling Stone or something, which I just thought to myself, I could probably listen to 206 albums and go, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> wow, this is number one for you, huh? It's really, really good. I mean, there, you know, you've got, you've got some Pink Floyd albums that are fantastic from beginning to end out there and just a very few others. But this is one that I just, I love every single second of every single song on this album. Okay, well, that's cool because this is going to be interesting because for me, three weeks ago, I'm a Pearl Jam greatest hits kind of guy. I, I was not familiar with most of these songs. For full disclosure, I was not one of those guys who became a Pearl Jam devotee after listening to this album. I love this album. I like a lot of the songs on a lot of the other albums, which I think a lot of people will say, now this is the true Pearl Jam, but it just wasn't as much my taste as 10 was. 10 was their best by far album, and it's obviously their biggest selling album and the one that brought them into the public eye. But it may not be their favorite album. It may not be their fan base's favorite album, but it's definitely my favorite album. Okay, I got a quick story about my experience with 10. Okay. okay. Spring break of 93. I go on a, a road trip with two of my roommates from college, Eric Matoyer, Doug Huggin, both friends of the show. So we drove to Boston from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Holy cow. Which is a freaking long way for my roommate's crappy car, right? <laughs> So all the way up and all the way back, we're listening to 10. Well, on the way back, we hit the storm of the century, crashed the car, got snowed in for three days. We missed school. We were trapped in Knoxville, Tennessee. But the whole way, we're listening to 10. And I finally, I remember one time, I'm like, can we please listen to Bon Jovi now? That's where <laughs> I, that was my first real experience with 10. So uh, Doug, Eric, thank you for that. Well, I, I would like to give you a hard time. I would. <laughs> but honestly, I was not an early adopter on these guys either. I wasn't just as in love with them as a lot of my friends were at the time. It took me a little while. But honestly, at that time, I had just become introduced to some of the classic rock. Like I had just started really listening to Led Zeppelin, Leonard Skinner, and some of those guys from the 70s. And I wasn't listening to anything new. I was just like, eh, I don't care about new music. Nothing's good anymore because I didn't realize, hey, these guys are putting out stuff that's not like, you know, Motley Crue and Bon Jovi. Not that I dislike Bon Jovi, but it was a time that I was turning my nose up at new music, especially new music that was like a whole new genre of music. But then once I gave 10 a chance and once I started really listening to it and learning it, I was like, this is more similar to 70s rock than anything since the 70s. I was just like, this is 
isn't new. These, I mean, Mike McCready is playing blue scale lead on this. This isn't something weird and fanciful. This is like a throwback to what was going on in the 70s. And it's good. Well, great. Well, let's get into it, man. I, I can't wait to talk about it with you. Pearl Jam is born out of the shattered pieces of other bands. It's like you, they went to a garage sale of bands and <laughs> pieced them together, mostly from a band called Mother Love Bone, which I had heard of, right. but didn't wasn't really familiar with their music. There is such a storied history. There's so many things going on. You've got the bands Malfunction, Green River, Shadow, and Bad Radio that are really the the precursors to, to this band. Malfunction was a band that was uh, led by Andrew Wood. And it broke up. Green River was a band that Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard were members of, along with Mark Arm and Steve Turner. Now, Jeff and Stone had disagreements with Steve about the sound that they should be going for. Steve thought that they were too much into the hard rock scene. And so he split. And then Mark disagreed about whether they should be trying to get on a big label or whether they should stay independent. Mark Arm said he would rather do an independent label. Jeff and Stone, they wanted to be big. They wanted to be big stars and go with a major record label. So that resulted in the end of Green River. Now, Mark Arm and Steve Turner got together after that and formed the group Mud Honey, which is one of Sub Pop, which we talked about last episode, one of their biggest bands. And then Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard got together with Andrew Wood and they formed Mother Love Bone. And they did really well. They had an EP come out called Shine and then it did pretty well. And then they signed with Polygram and they put together an album called Apple. And if you've heard any of Mother Love Bone's songs, it was probably off of that album, Apple. Yeah, I was telling you, I, I listened to that today. I was not familiar with Mother Love Bone. Mother Love Bone is a whole lot closer to the hair metal band stuff that was going on at the time. I was actually very surprised. Yeah, It sounded it, a lot to me like a combination of LA Guns, Slaughter, and Faster Pussycat. Yeah, Andy Wood, he was very much into the wanting to be a big rock star, big scene. Yeah. Like even when they were playing small clubs, he would he would treat it like it was an arena show. Yeah. Hey, you in the back, this one's for you. And he looks back there, there's a guy like one guy in the back holding a beer like <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They did well, say that I mean Andy Wood's personality was kind of out front of Mother Love Bone. So yeah, Andy Wood was also the roommate of Chris Cornell, who was the lead singer for Soundgarden. It's a very interesting story how they're all intermingled and intermixed, but it's it's a very camaraderie type of thing going on in Seattle. It's not combative. It's more friendly. That was something that the guy from the Ramones noted when he was talking to Chris Cornell. He was like, you guys support each other here. And that's something incredible because where we come from, we would do anything to sabotage any other competing band. So Mother Love Bone does their full length LP and then Andy Wood passes away like four weeks before the release of Apple. Apple was supposed to come out, I believe, in April of 1990. And in March of 1990, he overdosed on heroin. And it was obviously not only devastating to the band because they were no longer a band, but devastating because they lost a dear friend who was someone who was exciting and full of life, just had a demon. Can you imagine you're right on the precipice of all your dreams coming true? Yeah. And then when your best friends, he dies and, and your dream dies. Yeah. 
I mean, they talk about coming into the hospital, you know, just seeing him there on life support and it just being a memory that they can never escape. It just was overwhelming. I can't imagine. I mean, it's a bunch of young guys, you know, in their 20s to see somebody that young lose somebody that young. Just too much. So what happens is that Stone Gossard, he deals with the pain by going off and writing more music, deeper and kind of heavier music that he's writing. Jeff Ament quits playing altogether. He deals with it in a different way than that. And then Chris Cornell starts writing songs about the loss of his roommate and dear friend. And so Gossard is this guitarist who's writing these songs, and he remembers his buddy named Mike McCready. They had known each other when they were young. Mike McCready had played guitar long before Stone Gossard had even played guitar, but they had kind of, you know, enjoyed sending each other rock pictures. And then he remembers, hey, Mike had a band, but what happened with Mike's band is they became pretty big. They got pretty proud of themselves. They thought, we're going to go down to LA and become big. And they went down to LA and basically got told, you're not good enough to be down here. And that kind of <laughs> devastated them. So like 18 months after getting to LA, they go back to Seattle. And about six months after that, they're done. They're no longer a band. And he also quits playing guitar, cuts his hair, goes back to college. I mean, he's given up the dream. Gosh. And then he has a buddy who's like, hey man, why don't you come to a concert with me? I think you're giving up on something that you're really good at, but let's go to a Stevie Ray Vaughan concert. So he goes to the Stevie Ray Vaughan concert and Stevie Ray Vaughan starts the song, Couldn't Stand the Weather. As he starts the song, these clouds roll in and it starts to storm on top of the audience. And then as soon as the song is over, the storm stops and the clouds part. And <laughs> Mike McCready said, it was like a religious experience. I knew I needed to pick the guitar back up. That's great, man. That's and so great. he goes, he, he starts playing with another band called Love Chili. Gossard sees him there, calls him up, says, hey, let's play some songs together. And it's actually McCready that's like, hey, man, you've got some good stuff. We need to have a bass player. You need to call Jeff. And I believe his response was F Jeff. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was. <laughs> because, you know, they just, they didn't get along exceptionally well back then, even when they were on Mother Love Bone together. But he swallowed his pride and he called them up and they got Matt Cameron, who was the drummer for Soundgarden. Soundgarden and they put together a demo tape and it was five songs. And basically the point of the demo tape was to find a drummer and to find a lead singer. This is a really cool story. So they send this tape to their buddy, Jack Irons, who had formerly been in Red Hot Chili Peppers. Right. And they said, hey, we need a drummer. We need a vocalist. Are you interested in maybe drumming for us? And if so, great. If not, do you know any vocalists for us? Right. And he had a basketball buddy down <laughs> in San Diego that he yeah. ran around with yeah. who had been in a, a, a couple of bands or whatever. Right. It's this guy named Eddie Vedder. Maybe you've heard of him. <laughs> No, you hadn't back then. What are the odds that guys in Seattle make a demo tape, uh -huh. send it to a guy who not only listens to it, but hands it over to one of the great rock vocalists of all time? It's amazing. I mean, he's he's working like security in a petroleum factory. I mean, it's just... <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It it's is crazy. crazy. Eddie Vedder goes out surfing one night. He's got these tunes in his head and he kind of comes up with the lyrics as he's surfing. He basically comes back in, sits down on the beach and with sand still on his feet, writes the lyrics to what will become once, what will become alive and what will become footsteps 
which he calls the Mama Son trilogy because it's kind of got this mini opera type of feel where you have the mom and a son who have this weird incestuous relationship, which then leads the son to become crazy and become a serial killer. And then like Footsteps is the final act of the trilogy that you know he's in prison and, and awaiting execution. So he, he records his lyrics on top of the demo, sends it back to these guys. They listen to it. So I, I'm going I'm to throw this in there because I don't think you're going to, all of our listeners, listen up. I don't think anybody else is going to give you this piece of information that I'm about to lay down to you. So if you, if you look at the tape that he sent back, I used to do this when I was recording things and, you know, living by myself, I had no money either. And buying tapes to record on can be expensive. So what you can do is you can take a tape that's a commercially made tape. And if you just stick little pieces of paper in the top holes, you can record on it again. Um, And so that's what you would do. And so I, I looked at this tape and I was like, holy crap, this is an actual tape of somebody's that he has taken and recorded on. Eddie Vedder recorded on this tape, and then he used Whiteout to white out everything except for one song title. One song title was A Friend in California. I, yeah, you have no idea who that I, is. I, I, recognize I, I'm, it. No. I will, I'm wondering if anybody who's listening right now has any idea what, who sang A Friend from California. Handwritten above that, it says to Jeff and Stone. Then down at the bottom, he also uses Whiteout to white out all of the letters of the bottom part, and it It's just the letters that spell out Eddie. So I looked at this and I was like, I've got to figure out what this tape is. It was Merle Haggard, Greatest (laughs) Hits of the 80s. That was the tape that he decided to record over. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. That's got to go on your trivia card this week. So if you're listening to this, it's going on the trivia card. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. And he wrote his telephone number on there as well. I saw that when they showed it to him. I actually watched a video where the guy, the interviewer, uh-huh. handed that tape to Eddie Vedder. And he's like, "Oh, check it out. It's my old telephone number." <laughs> so when so, he sends yeah. it back to Stone, they yeah. listen to it and they're like, "Not We're only can he sing, but he can write lyrics." Yeah, I mean, he's like a poet, right? Yeah. And so he impressed him enough for them to fly him up to Seattle to audition. Yep. And as he's going up, he writes the lyrics to two more songs. It was a five song deal, writes the lyrics to two more songs. So he's got all of them written and he arrives up there and they're in the middle of starting to do this temple of the dog thing with Chris Cornell. Mike McCready comes in and I'm just going to say this right now. Mike McCready is maybe one of the most underappreciated guitarists that I can think of. He is a rock god who deserves more credit than he gets. He deserves to be up there with Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eddie Van Halen. I mean, he is phenomenal. And so Chris Cornell, you know, the grunge scene, the alternative scene was all against, you know, doing these big, long guitar solos. You know, we talked about Nirvana. You don't, the guitar solo is just a melody of the words, you know. Right. But Chris Cornell was just kind of like, F all of you guys. I'm going to put a five minute guitar solo on the first song on this album. What do you think (laughs) about that? And so he, he said he almost had to yell at Mike McCready because he was like, you play guitar so freaking good. You're the one guy who I want to play a five minute guitar solo on my first 11 minute long song it's solid i mean it's not you can see his progression as time goes on you know it's not his best work but man it's still really good you know chris cornell 
was in a position to really help out the band too. When he was doing this Temple of the Dog thing and they're doing Hunger Strike, they were like, you know, hey, we've got a new singer. And he's like, well, we'll bring him on board, man. Let's get him going. And he can sing with me and we can go. And so that was actually the first time that Eddie Vedder ever heard himself on an actual record. Chris Cornell was basically like, I kind of have this idea for how I want the other vocal part to go in this. And he said, and then suddenly Eddie just started singing it. And it was as if he already knew what I had had planned. Like he had just knew it. And Hunger Strike is, you know, the one, the, the major duet that they do on that one. Yeah, but I'm going hungry. I love that song. So good. So, you know, Eddie Vedder arrives They're They're introducing people. But what when they first when he first arrives, he's like, I don't want to do anything. I want to go straight to the rehearsal. I don't want to see the town. I don't want to do any touristy stuff. I want to go and I want to start playing right away. And for the next five days, they rehearse. And on day number six, they do their first show. I think it's awesome. <laughs> I believe his term was I'm not here to F around. If you listen to the songs, especially Alive, from that demo tape that he had sent back, I mean, there's not a whole lot different, honestly, from the way that he originally did the lyrics and the way they originally played it to what the song is on, on the Final Ten album. Can we talk about their name? I'm, I'm ready contribute to the name well okay so we know that they started playing sessions they started playing shows right off the bat they started opening for alice in chains but the name under alice in chains was not pearl jam that's right it wasn't it was mookie blaylock so if you're a basketball fan especially a 90s basketball fan then you know who this guy is Yep. If you were born and raised in Oklahoma, like I was, <laughs> right. you recognize this guy from college because he played at my alma mater, the University of Oklahoma. Right. He truly is one of the great defensive players of all time. Led the league in steals, that type of thing. And in college, man, he would, he'd press you all the way up the court. And these guys were big basketball fans. Uh-huh. And they were big fans of Mookie Blaylock, who at the time, I know he played for the Atlanta Hawks. New Jersey Nets was who he was playing for at the time that they adopted his name. So anyway, the original name for the band, Mookie Blaylock. They got together, they started rehearsing in the fall of 1990. Eddie moves up in like November. They start doing all of the shows. And by March, they start doing their demo recordings at the London Bridge Studio there in Seattle. They sign with a major record label. And guess what? You can't be Mookie Blaylock anymore. <laughs> First of all, Mookie Blaylock doesn't know who five scrubs from Seattle are at this moment, <laughs> right? Yeah. The Wait a minute. Hall One of you guys is a security guard. The other guy's working at a coffee shop. That's and, right. uh, and another guy used to work at a pizza place. <laughs> Oh, here's, so, a, here's, a, here's an interesting bit of trivia as well. The, the guy that worked at the pizza place was Mike McCready. He worked at a pizza place with the guy named Pete Druge, who has a song that you may or may not recognize called, If You Don't Love Me, I'll Kill Myself. And it's from the movie. That's from Dumb and Dumber. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Mike McCready and the guy who sang that song used to work in the same pizza shop together. Oh, man, that is incredible. What a great <laughs> nugget that is. I am a huge Dumb and Dumber fan, which we're going to cover one of these days. So anyway, the, the record company says, okay, you guys can't be Mookie Blay like you got to pick something else, right? Right. So they do eventually form the name Pearl Jam. Pearl right. Jam, right. 
And so the way they came up with this, I thought this was at least interesting, although a little anticlimactic. They kind of liked the name Pearl. It was Eddie Vedder's great-grandmother's name. Yeah. And Jeff just kind of thought, okay, that's kind of a cool word. Yeah. (laughs) And then they went to a Neil Young concert where he would just play these extra-long extended versions of these songs. Pearl, jam. Right. Pearl jam. Yeah, it's, it's not as exciting as what you would hope it would be. And so what Eddie Vedder did right after they became famous was to lie about where it came from. <laughs> I heard this story too. Yeah, as he's like, no, I had a great-grandmother named Pearl, and she was married to a Native American, and she used to make this peyote lace jam, and it would get you high and stuff. And, but yeah, later on, he's like, no, that was BS. That was a lie, yeah. All right, so then they become Pearl Jam. Their first album is going to be called 10. Which, which has is, 11 songs. Why well, would it be called it's called 10 because that's Mookie Blaylock's number. Oh, that was a setup. By the way, I totally set you up right Thank there. Thank you. Thank you. I teed it up for <laughs> me right there. Appreciate that. Uh, we've talked before with Van Halen and with Def Leppard about MTV being in you know the right place at the right time for these bands. What interestingly happens for this one is that independent record label that I talked about last episode called Sub Pop. There's a neat little thing that Sub Pop does. The first interesting thing they figure out is if <laughs> if they don't make as many records, they create a, a demand because people are like, oh, they, they, you can't get these because they only made you know whatever 500 of them or whatever. So they they do that little trick to increase the value of their records. And then the other trick that they learned is they realized that all music movements started with a regional base. You know, you look at Motown and its base was Detroit. So they thought, okay, well, we're going to make Seattle. We're going to make that region our regional base for this big music movement. And they're, they're a large part of why grunge and why alternative music from Seattle became as big as it did, because they had this crazy idea that, in, that they engaged in in March of 1989. And these are like a small time, don't know what they're doing, just trying to get their feet under them guys but they they said let's get the most important reporter from melody maker over in europe to come over here we'll fly him over we'll act like we're big time we'll show him the seattle scene and the seattle sound and hopefully he'll write a good article about it well that's exactly what happens and that is exactly what he does and all of a sudden everyone becomes obsessed with the seattle sound and that was the impetus behind people latching on and it you know as as with all things it takes a little while for these things to happen but the fascination with seattle and kind of the grunge sound and the grunge look uh, became a thing largely because of sub pop and then i mean quite frankly Pearl Jam enjoyed the success on 10 that it did, part because of the Seattle sound trick and then also because of Nirvana. For people who enjoy pop culture like you and I do, yeah, it's fascinating to see when the lit match and the gasoline meet. And what's interesting with this one is how quickly the word grunge became a dirty word to all of these guys. <laughs> Like every rebellion against the establishment begins with someone saying, hey, you know, we don't want to we don't want to do what the man is wanting us to do. We're going to do our own thing. Then it starts to gain traction. People join in. It becomes like a movement. And then the establishment sees it and it's like, oh, hey, we can market this and we can pay its band leaders and we'll we'll make it our own. And then the movement becomes the new establishment. And that's 
what happened with rock and roll in the early 80s, what happened with heavy metal in the mid to late 80s. And that's what happens now with the grunge music and the Seattle scene is it's the rebellion against heavy metal. And then it turns into the new heavy metal where, you know, then Versace is selling grunge style in, <laughs> in magazines and stuff. And so right. it, it quickly became the establishment. Okay. Right. So just a few musical influences. Eddie likes The Who and Michael Jackson and The Jackson 5. Mike McCready likes Funkadelic and Def Leppard and Van Halen. Right. Stone likes rap. (laughs) All of them were into Ice Cube at the time that that he was becoming big. Kurt Cobain said some kind of negative things about them when they first came out. Like he's like, yeah, they're they're just hard rock. They're just another hard rock band wearing our clothes. That they're not really a true alternative, a true grunge band. And it kind of was upsetting to Eddie. And Eddie gave him a call, and Kurt Cobain kind of changed his tune a little bit and said, "I'm not going to say anything bad about them. I I don't like their music, and I never have. But I like Eddie Vedder. He's a nice guy." And so I'm not going to say ugly stuff about them anymore. I do think that's interesting. I don't think Kurt Cobain is wrong. I mean, I think that Pearl Jam is a hard rock band with grunge elements. And I think that Nirvana is kind of a punk band with pop and grunge elements. And they're from the same area. So there are similarities, but they're from they're They form different trees, you know? Sure. And I mean, if you, if you listen to any of the bands out of Seattle, they all have kind of a, a different sound. It is not as though they're all playing the same type of music. Well, I did hear Cameron Crowe say that one of the reasons why they had formed this kind of Seattle sound was that because of the weather, they had a lot of time to play because they were indoors. They had a lot of time to play and they had a lot of time to listen to music. And so because of the, just the weather situation, that's just kind of what it lends itself to. Well, certainly the sound of the music is, is different. I mean, the sound of the music of Nirvana and the sound of the music of Pearl Jam is very distinct. You would not confuse them, but just like Metallica brought brains to heavy metal, Pearl Jam brought relevance and depth and you know meaning to hard rock, which had been missing for a while. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, they were doing hard rock, but the lyrics were about the loneliness and the confusion of youth. And I think that's why they are appropriately in with this group of of new sound, the the, the revolution that was occurring. We didn't talk about the drummers. Honestly, it's kind of confusing. It is is confusing. They they went through like three different drummers, but basically Dave Crewson was the one who was on the album 10, and he's the one that played for them. He eventually went into rehab almost right after the album was finished, and so he was replaced by Matt Chamberlain, who had been the drummer for Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians, and then he got an opportunity to be on Saturday Night Live with Saturday (laughs) Night Live Band. So he was like, "Uh, sorry guys, I'm not going to keep drumming for you, and that (laughs) He recommended Dave of Bruzies to be the drummer, and he was this guy out of Texas. And it's really interesting, and I, I'll, I'll jump ahead a little bit, but in one of the videos, Mike Chamberlain is the one playing the drums, and Dave of Bruzies is one of the guys out in the crowd because he's just arrived from, from Austin, Texas. <laughs> 
the album actually starts off with the sounds of a hidden track. The, the hidden track is called Master Slave. And so if you listen to the beginning of the album and the end of the album, it's the same tune. Um, but it's just a real brief, you know, kind of taste of Master and Slave. And then we open with Once. The hidden track on 10 yeah. is uh, not near as offensive as the hidden track on the Nirvana album. <laughs> the hidden track on 10 is good. and <laughs> It's just kind of like, it's like a cracker. It's like, just there's not really much substance to it. It's just kind of little drums and that's it. <laughs> it it's not a nail being driven into your brain. It's a cool sound. It's kind of gets you in a mood. And it's definitely not something that when the guy comes in to mix the CD and nobody else is there, that he thinks is, <laughs> oh, this is a mistake. This shouldn't be in here. This, this is, is terrible. crap. This is garbage. We need to throw it away. <laughs> right. <laughs> Once, the first song on the album, was originally called A Jitian Crave. And that was just what Stone Gossard had called it whenever he sent the demo tape. But it is part of that Mama Son mini opera that, that Eddie Vedder had written. This song was on the, the demo tape, the Stone Gossard Demos 91, right? Right. One that Eddie Vedder got a hold of. Okay. Yes. And so when they did the single release for Alive, this song was on the B side for that one, you know, and Alive, as I said before, was also part of that Mama Son mini opera. But this one is the one that is the story of the descent into madness where he ultimately becomes a serial killer, you know, backseat lover on the side of the road, got a bomb in my temple and it's going to explode. They did this one, as with many of them, on their performance in October 22nd of 90, that very... I don't remember if it's their first or second performance, but right, right off the bat, they're performing this. Yeah. This is kind of a hard rocker song. This is, I mean, it's a pound your fist. The crowd is kind of yeah. bopping their head and let's go, right? Yeah, it's um, angry. It's angry. This song received some radio play. I was familiar with this song when, when we started this. The next one we have is Even Flow. What a freaking great song this is. I'm afraid that I'm just going to gush over every single one of these songs. <laughs> pull it back just a little bit, all right? So That's the way I felt it. when we did Hysteria. So Yeah, right. So this one is the picture of a homeless man and... I mean, that's evident from the lyrics. You know that even Flo is this guy with problems, uh, mental problems probably, and, and, and thoughts that he has to drive away and chase away, and an insane look whenever he smiles. And it turns out he's based on an actual guy, a Vietnam vet that Eddie Vedder met, whose name was also Eddie, um, who ended up passing away. The cool thing to me, in 2008, Eddie Vedder said this song was written underneath the Space Needle. Yeah. I mean, there's three things I know about Seattle. I know the Seahawks, I know the Mariners, and I know, you know, Frasier and the Space Needle. That's it. Right. I guess that's four things, but <laughs> <laughs> this song took forever to get it right. Yeah. They played it like 50, 60, 70 times, and some members of the band are still dissatisfied to this day. They did a couple different versions of it, ultimately, and one of them they recorded 
with the drummer Dave Abruzzi, and that's the one that appears on the single soundtrack. So <laughs> a couple of nights ago, I watched singles. It's fascinating because Cameron Crowe had heard about the death of Andy Wood. He had this kind of storyline idea and decided to go up to Seattle and hang with these bands and he ends up casting i mean you got allison chains performing on stage you've got chris cornell standing next to matt dillon as he's cranking up the volume on his girlfriend's uh, speakers that he's just installed and then all the windows blow out <laughs> and chris cornell's <laughs> just watching it just just kind of nodding his head like yeah rock and roll man <laughs> And then Matt Dillon is the lead singer for this band called Citizen Dick. <laughs> That's awesome. Whose, whose major song is Touch Me, I'm Dick. <laughs> but his band is Eddie Vedder, Stone Gossard, and Jeff Amon. I mean, it's That's the, cool, man. So, yes, there's a couple movie. different scenes that they're in. But it's fascinating because they are making this movie at the same time that these guys are putting this album together. Like none of them are famous. Chris Cornell is Seattle famous and Allison Chains is Seattle famous, but the, the guys that they got to play the members of Matt Dillon's band, there they were no ones at the time. Other than that, he was ably backed by Stone and Jeff and drummer Eddie Vedder. I mean, that's good. That's a, that's a good review. A compliment for us is a compliment for you. No, man. Even Flo is the second single released. It was released April 6th, 1992. Yeah. And so this is released in 92, and it's the fifth most played song on the radio yeah. during the 2010s. Yeah. During it's, the 2010s. Th because every single one of these songs have staying power. This one, just to talk musically, Stone Gossard used an open D tuning, and then Mike McCready says, yeah, I just kind of ripped off uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. This song's very different than anything rock that i had been hearing at the time but the the vocalization is kind of staccato is it's different it's very yeah. different yeah but i mean super great i mean yeah. this is a song that i was a late adopter to but ultimately came to love did you have a little bit of trouble learning to speak eddie vetter oh i still don't know what the heck he's saying <laughs> I mean, the worst, the worst and most famous of the unintelligible Eddie Vedder lyrics is, comes from uh, Yellow Lead Better. I, I, <laughs> this day. I, don't, I don't know that I know what one single line of that song is so, as good as it is. But Kim Thale, the guy who's the guitar player for Soundgarden. I mean, you get to think about what this song is about, right? It's about it's about homelessness and, you know, this guy with a concrete pillow. And he, he when he went and heard them live, he thought it was called evening flow it was like you know like how everyone's like in the evening it's just kind of a flow and we're having fun like a good time that's awesome so the video on this one they had recorded this video where the, the guy came in and he recorded all these zoo scenes of animals and the band was kind of air playing their instruments on the edge of this cliff but once they got the footage they're like well, this was a colossal waste of time and money. And so what happened was they still had the video, but it was done by this guy named Josh Taft, who was just filming as a friend. He's a friend of Stone Gossard's. He had directed Alive and later on directed Oceans, but he had, was there just filming this footage. But on the full length video of this, which you didn't typically see on MTV, Eddie Vedder starts the video by going, this is not a TV studio, Josh. Turn these lights out. It's an effing rock concert. <laughs> I watched this video today and I'm like, this can't be the official video. He's yelling at people. Yeah, Eddie Vedder had an aversion to videos at all, really. I yeah. think. It's interesting on the album, 
you don't hear the end piece on this. They released this in UK first, but it says, I died, I died, and you just stood there. I died, and you watched. I died, and you walked by and said, no, I'm dead. I was like, wow, how did I never hear that before? Well, it's because it's not on the album, but it is in the video. So third track on the album is called Alive. I'm glad your head banging right now. It's, it's really appropriate. Oh, man, this song is so good, man. This was their first single released July 7th, 91. It's so yeah, the, and, and I knew that you would love this song because this song has the most mass appeal. This is the most radio-friendly one of the bunch, for sure. Alright, so this song starts off with, Son, she says, have I got a little story for you. What you thought was your daddy was nothing but uh, while you were sitting home alone at age 13, your real daddy was dying. So this is an actual event that occurred in Eddie Vedder's life. He, oh, okay. he had a conversation with his mom where he finds out that the man that he thought was his dad his entire life is not his dad. And you know, this, of course, they didn't get along particularly well. So this is a big realization for him. And then he finds out that his real dad, not only did he not know that it was his real dad, but he knew the guy. Like it was just like somebody he thought was a family friend. And then he finds out not only, hey, this guy was my dad, but he died a few years ago. So he has never has that opportunity to to bond with him. And his mom kind of treats it like it's no big deal, which is, you know, the underlying emotion behind this whole song is pretty hmm. intense. Man, that's a sad story. So this song was originally recorded January in 1991 yep. as a part of a demo session, Yeah, which during the recording of 10, they couldn't recreate the intensity of that original demo. Right. So they went back and took that demo and kind of corrected it and improved it. And that's what you got. This one was one that Stone Gossard had actually written while he was still with Mother Lovebone. And apparently Andy Wood sang some sort of lyrics to it. It was when they sent out the demo tape. This was the one that he called Dollar Short. And Mike McCready, when they play this one live, will go into the Black Sabbath War Pigs solo at the end of this one. Speaking of that guitar solo. Yeah. Mike McCready said that he based this on Ace Frehley's solo in the Kiss song, She. Yes, which he said was based on the Doors song, Five to One. I stole it from Kiss, but they stole it from the Doors. <laughs> this is the video, by the way, that you have the live footage on where you see Chamberlain drumming and Dave Abruzzi's in the audience. That's yeah. a neat little nugget right there. Okay, so song number four on the album, the song's called Why Go. Again, I love it. It kicks butt. Now, this is one that it didn't get as much radio play as some of the other songs on it. So what did you think about it when you heard it first? Well, I like it. It's kind of a head bobber. It's a definitely probably one of those songs that you hear in concert and everybody's like, yeah, freaking awesome. 
But when I listen to the album, I would say this is definitely the lower third of the album. Honestly, I put all of these songs almost at a tie for perfect. Um, but this one is, I just like the, the imagery that he does with this one. I mean, the song begins with, she scratches a letter into a wall made of stone. Maybe someday another child won't feel as alone. And it's about this girl who's, you know, struggling in this mental facility of some kind. You can tell from the lyrics of the song. And then as it turns out, this was actually some real girl that Eddie Vedder had read about, like 13 years old, her parents catch her smoking pot and send her to a hospital over smoking pot. And she refuses to say that she's got anything wrong with her. So ends up staying two years in the hospital because the doctors, you know, want to argue that she's crazy. liner notes he dedicates the song to a girl named heather so if anybody's got more information on who heather is out there sorry about your situation thank you for inspiring a <laughs> awesome song now then this is a song that i'm very familiar with that i want to get into this song's called black let's just soak in this for a minute just pause and appreciate the, the beauty of this song. Sheets of empty canvas Untouched sheets of clay Early spread out before me As her body May 2011, Black was voted the ninth best ballad of all time by the readers of Rolling Stone. You know, this song, even though I'm familiar with it from the radio, it wasn't released as a single. Yeah, the record label urged the band to release this song as a single, but they refused it. They said, no, we will not release this as a single. And Eddie Vedder went so far as to call radio stations to go, hey, did the, the record label send you a single of this? Because I told them not to. You better not. They better not be doing that. But the record label didn't. The radio stations just chose to play it anyway because they appreciated how awesome it was. But Eddie Vedder said some songs just aren't meant to be between hit number two and hit number three. It was too emotional. It was too meaningful to him to to put it in that category. You know, we can talk all day about what Pearl Jam has done in regards to their fame and their popularity. Yeah. But refusing to send their best songs to play, be played on the radio... Yeah. It's so interesting to me that they shun that type of, I mean, Bon Jovi whores out their albums like crazy. I mean, <laughs> you know, they had the same type of experience that Nirvana had, which was they have almost a literal overnight success. And, it, and theirs was a little bit longer than Nirvana's was, but Nirvana had been together for quite a while, had released another album before Nevermind became the big overnight success that it was. These guys had literally gotten to, I mean, they had gotten together in the fall of 1990. And by 1992, this thing is exploding and they're playing Lollapalooza with these giant arenas. And Eddie Vedder, like Kurt Cobain, was just like, I don't want to be here instantaneously. I wanted to go through years of roughing it and playing small clubs and doing these things. I didn't 
want the overnight success. This is one that this is about as close to a love song as they get on this album. And it really hits home for me. And I think it does for so many people. It's about the heartbreak of losing a love. The lyrics, like many of his lyrics, are kind of vague and paint a picture, but don't give you vivid details. But he said, you can't really have a true love unless it was a love unrequited. And I was like, wow, too beautiful. You know, when we talked about radio stations not receiving this as a single, but they were playing it anyway. Yeah. It, it reached all the way to number three on the Hot Rocks chart. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. I like at the very end, mm-hmm. that little... To me, that's where the song really comes together. After Black, we now go into what I think is the best song in the entire album, Jeremy. So you sent me a video today um, by this guy named Rick Beto, which I hadn't seen before, that is called What Makes This Song Great, Episode 5, Pearl Jam. And they look at, he looks at Jeremy. And my response to you was, this is so musically over my head that I can't possibly begin to even relay what's going on. (laughs) But I can just tell you, as someone who does have some musical experience, holy crap, I didn't realize all of the intricacies that they had going on in this. And to be such a world famous hit and to do all of the strange things that they're doing on this one i'm just like holy smokes it's awesome again i'm not a musician i I understood even less of this than you did but he he does talk about the unusual octave jumps that they make throughout this song yeah so i wrote down a couple of examples so he's talking about the pools of maroon below and then he jumps up to daddy you know yeah, that huge jump, and they, he does it several times throughout the song. And so it's just incredibly complex. He said it's uh, similar to something like a jazz musician would do. It's fantastic musically, and then of course the subject matter of the song is so strong. I mean, this is about the actual suicide of a a boy in Texas named Jeremy Dell, uh, who at 16 years old was sent to go get an admission slip and came back with a gun and said, I didn't get the admission slip, but I got what I meant to, and then killed himself in front of his English class. Shot himself on January 8th, 1991, which would make him probably very close to yours or my age. So, Yeah, that hurts my heart. Eddie Vedder had read about this Jeremy Dell in the Dallas Morning News, and it actually reminded him of someone that he knew in school who one year brought a gun to school and didn't shoot himself, but shot a fish tank. (laughs) Yeah. And so Eddie, Eddie said, and I had been in a fight with this kid the year before, you know, can you just imagine like (laughs) seeing the guy that you were like, yeah, kick his butt. And then in the next year, you're like, Oh, holy crap. He brought a gun to school. He shot the fish tank. (laughs) On a lighter note, my good friend and friend of the show, Tristan Martin told me when I told him we were doing Pearl Jam, he said, one of the things I know about Pearl Jam 10 is that there are 29 oohs <laughs> Jeremy. He said, me and my brother would sit and listen to this song and count the oohs. So, Tristan, thank you for that little bit of nugget right there. 29 oohs. 
So this um, one, this is the one, uh, one of the professional, professionally done videos. It was done by Mark Pellington, uh, who also did the rooster video for Alice in Chains and who directed the movie Arlington Road. Huh. He said he did three takes of Eddie singing and then almost the rest of the video was just him, his own creation. The band said, we don't really want to be in the video. So you get like little brief flashes of the band. You get Eddie sitting on a stool singing and then mostly it is the creation of Mark Pellington. This song is the best song in the album, in my opinion, and one of the best songs of the 90s. So on Jeremy, the B-side of Jeremy was a song called Footsteps, which most people don't know, but it is, it's a, it's a very different sounding. It doesn't sound like the other songs on this album. Don't even think about reaching me. But it was the third part of that Mama Son trilogy. And you've got the incestuous relationship, which then leads to the serial killer. Well, Footsteps is he's in prison awaiting execution. All right. Next song after Jeremy is a song called Oceans. This is the fourth single released December 7th, 1992. Yes, this is about a surfboard. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He, he joked in MTV Unplugged about it being a, about a surfboard, but it was, and then he said, no, I'm just kidding. It's about a girl named Beth, uh, who I hopefully will see tomorrow. And, you know, got to think that that's probably the lady he ended up marrying later on named Beth Liebling. This, you think of these guys as being so serious about their music. They're always very serious seeming, but the story behind this song actually made me laugh out loud. So they're recording. <laughs> hey, and hey, can you go play, pay the parking meter for me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, somebody says they were recording, uh, doing some work in the recording studio. Hey, Eddie, here's some change. We run out to the meter and plug this in my car i'm about to i'm about to flip over and get a ticket so eddie goes outside to plug some coin into the meter and locks himself out of the studio <laughs> while it's raining and cold yeah and he's he not dressed he, for it and he's not he doesn't have anything to so he's freezing his butt off in the wet rain and so he just sits down and writes the lyrics to the song yeah just happen to have a pen and a piece of paper and they're still playing like they're still playing on the inside you know he, <laughs> he can they hear can't him. hear him but he can hear them <laughs> so he's like okay i can hear the bass here i guess f it might as well write a song to this <laughs> and so you've got this really kind of sweet short song this is the shortest lyrics that you're going to see on any of the song but he sits there and listens to the bass and start writing lyrics and then when the bass stops playing he's like oh and starts pounding on the door and then he's the bass playing again <laughs> <laughs> that's funny so this song it's, it's it is interesting to me because this song is i would i would describe it as epic emotional yeah. and and grand yeah but it's very short this is a song that could go on for eight or nine or ten minutes and i would listen to it yeah. it's like what is it not even three minutes i mean it's real short yeah. Kind of interesting. The video was shot in Hawaii and inspired by his love of surfing. 
Yeah, this is the this is one. You, if you look at the liner notes, you'll see that the 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 guy who ended up mixing the album for him. By the way, they spent he they didn't spend as much money on this one as they did when they did Apple for Love, Mother Love Bone, but they spent way more money on the mixing side of things than on the recording side of things. So they mixed the album at a place called Ridge Farm Studios in Dorking, and um, they're recording and they're about as far away from any kind of musical equipment supply places you're going to be. And so Tim Palmer, the guy who's doing the, the mixing for them, they couldn't get to like percussion that the, the mixer thought they needed. And so he ended up using a pepper grinder, kind of like a maraca or something. And then he used, he takes some drum sticks and beats on a fire extinguisher. And so that's what you get on the little, the little pings and the, uh, clicks that happen in this particular song is, is some random percussion and whatever it is it works credit and liner notes for pepper mill and fire extinguisher <laughs> this one also is one in the open d tuning and this one is stone gossard's favorite track off of 10 and also jeff amon's favorite track off of 10 it's an amazing song I, I love it okay moving on song after oceans this song is called porch This is a song that, for me and my family, you got to be quick on the skip because that <laughs> F word is like one and a half seconds into it. Yeah. And for my family, this would get my tape confiscated. So you yeah. got to be super fast on the skipper on this one. Yeah, this is one. I just love it. It's just so angry and, you know, one that you're going to go into the mosh pit on. It is. Yeah, another, this is the other one. This is number five that he wrote on the way to Seattle to meet them for the first time. And the lyrics on this one, I you know, the other ones are they they have a beautiful poetry to them, and they you can tell what they're about, but it's not like it's in your face. You you get an impressionist painting kind of thing on these other songs with porch it's way open to interpretation as to what he's talking about but it's got this fantastic instrumental break like it's completely different hits the e minor here it goes So while this solo is going on, it's a nice long solo, and of course for their live shows they'd extend it even further. And if any, if you've ever seen any Pearl Jam live, you know that Eddie Vedder is going to get bored and go start climbing stuff. <laughs> and so this is the song. He's like, "All right, nice long guitar solo in this song. Let's go climb up on the rafters, swing." And you know the guys talk about how they're watching him do this, and they they're like, "I was frightened to death." every single time we're just watching and just waiting for him to oh yeah okay there our lead singer just died he just yep. <laughs> fell to his death in front of us <laughs> it was crazy scary to see him do this stuff but man he was living life all right after porch we've got a song called garden Yeah, this one, again, I love it. I didn't know until recently what it was about. I just enjoyed the song, had my own interpretation on it. But apparently they came up with this one uh, when they heard about the invasion of Kuwait. There's no, no mystery about how they feel about Bush. 
both senior and junior. And so uh, they, when they heard about this, they were so frustrated. And the Garden of Stone is a cemetery and that I will walk with my hands bound. It's, it's kind of this idea of being forced into war, but it's still just, again, a beautiful song. What did you think? This is not, again, not one of the ones that's mainstream awareness. So what did you think when you heard this one? I would call this song dark and beautiful. I mean, the whole album to me has a, has a hint of sadness to it. Yeah. I would say, you know, Nirvana's Nevermind is more about being angry and rebellious. This record is more emotional and sad. Yeah. Brooding. Brooding yes. is the word that I used. You know, there are obviously lyrics about deeper things from both bands, but whereas Kurt Cobain is more a scream at authority, this is a more of a brooding anger that, that yeah. you get from Eddie Vedder. I do like how there's two guitars. You, if, when you listen to it on headphones, you get one guitar on the left, one guitar on the right, and they make that beautiful fullness that's really satisfying. Definitely love it. Beautiful song. Love it. All right, so after Garden, we have a song called Deep. Again, I, I can't do anything but gush about all of these songs, but this one is another one that's very much open to interpretation. There's not a whole, you know, I've, I've seen a whole bunch of different uh, ideas about what this song is about, and I don't agree with any of them, and I don't know that the band has said anything about it. But, I mean, you get hints of... You know, you got a man on a window ledge about to jump out, maybe, or maybe it's drug use, or maybe it's murder, or maybe it's rape, and it's all this kind of multi-meaning. This was probably my least favorite song in the entire album. What bothers you about it? It doesn't bother me. It just doesn't grab me like the others do. To me, it didn't have the beauty of Oceans or Garden. And it didn't have that same hook that Even Flow and Alive have. And Jeremy's on its own level for for me but right it's in the lower third but it's still good but it just didn't grab me yeah this one i think i've said something about the end of jaws before like if <laughs> if if you've made it this far in the movie yeah. you're totally gonna buy in on an exploding oxygen tank <laughs> <laughs> right for, for deep i've i've bought in so hard on all nine songs leading up to this one that i was just like it just fell right into the groove and i just love it each and every time i hear it still all right, so the last song on the album is a fantastic song. Amazing. That, to me, it's similar to something in the way at the end of Nevermind. Uh -huh. I don't know why they kind of hold this gem to the very last track, but release is awesome. It's beautiful. It's sing-along. You're at the concert. The, the lighter's going up. This is a song that they kind of came up with in the studio. It was, you know, they would be jamming on the song and it had this deep and beautiful feel. And then Eddie just goes up to the microphone and just starts singing. Like it hasn't, he hasn't written anything down. He just starts singing what's on his heart. And, and it's about his dad. about oh dear dad do you see me now and his idea that he's got to release the pain that he's dealing with and you know he talks about how he's he's singing this and it's it's deeply meaningful to him and then he re he's looking around and he realizes my gosh 
the other band members are totally feeling this because of what they went through with Andy Wood, that they've got, they've still got this deep emotional scar that they have to overcome, that they have to let go and, and ultimately move on with, with life. Um, so for anybody, for anybody who's lost something, who's lost somebody really close to them, uh, this song can be a very emotional song to listen to. Nice. Thank you for that, D. So that wraps it up. I mean, that's that's 10. So they released 10, and it wasn't like the overnight success that Nevermind was. It, it took a little while to gain its traction, but by August of 92, they had reached number two on the Billboard 200. But you know who they could not unseat? Billy Ray Cyrus. Oh. <laughs> World, what were you thinking? Uh, oh, my gosh. Billy Ray Cyrus's album "Some Gave All" was number one for seventeen weeks in the nineties. Everyone who's listening right now should just punch themselves right <laughs> in the face one time for allowing that to happen. All right, we ready to put these on the scales? Yeah. Why don't you lead off? I know okay. you have a, kind of a stronger relationship with this album in particular. Okay. So putting these two on the scales, it's, it is difficult for me to do. I thought when we started this process, it was going to be super easy for me to do because as I've said before, 10 is one of my favorite albums of all time. Maybe my favorite album of all time. There is nothing wrong with it from beginning to end, including that fantastic hidden track that begins and ends the album. But then when I listened to Nevermind, I was impressed. I was just like, wow. This is a lot better than I I'd never, I just never gave it that chance. Um, you know, I had kind of, I told you I had written off these guys. And to me, Nirvana was still kind of written off. I had this fantastic, you know, romantic experience with Smells Like Teen Spirit, oddly enough. Um, but it was, uh, it wasn't a band that I was fully invested in. They were just, they kind of were weird and loud and not particularly strong musicians from my way of thinking back then. But now listening to them now, 25 years later dang they're good that was really really good and there's a rawness to their sound that's enticing to me i mean you know from our past musical talks that i prefer the less produced sound and if you look at these two albums there's no question nirvana sounds less produced i mean we talked about the fact that butch vig did a whole lot of producing but he did it in such a way like that it was still very natural sounding you know it's like the best makeup is the one that looks natural right well that's what he did with that album but i can't i mean as good as nevermind is and as much as i was impressed with it I cannot escape the fact that 10 is flawless from beginning to end. It still has staying power. It is more produced and the band has said as much, you know, they're like, really wish we didn't have as much reverb on that album and we would have done things differently as bands in that age tend to do. But the fact is it is freaking amazing music by amazing musicians. Nirvana, their music was rough and almost deliberately so, which was kind of the punk style. And with them, you got a jump. They jumped away from what was mainstream music at the time. With Pearl Jam, it was more of a stepping stone. It was like, we're fine with the idea of hard rock. We're fine with screaming guitar solos, but we're going to put in lyrics that are still deep and about the loneliness and despondence of youth. And we're going to 
write about things like suicide and incest and mental health facilities and still make it a melodic, engaging song. And so as much as I do like Nevermind more now than I did then, it still doesn't match up to 10 for me. 10 is still the best in my opinion. What are your thoughts? Nice. Nice. Okay. So I'm coming in very similar to what you're you're describing. I had never listened to Nevermind from beginning to end, and I liked it a whole lot more than I thought I would. The peaks are super high peaks, okay? Come As You Are, unbelievable song. Teen Spirit, unbelievable song, right? In Bloom, maybe my favorite song on that entire album. And those are so good. But then you have, in my opinion... You have junk songs like Stay Away and Territorial Pistings. <laughs> to me, there's there's some junk songs, but there are some absolute grand slams on that on that album. And as I whole, um, you know, Drain You and Polly on a plane, I mean, those songs I appreciate and love more. I do think my personality fits better with the guys from Pearl Jam. If I wanted to hang out with somebody, I'm definitely with them. If I want to go to a concert, I'm with them who has more staying power. I mean, these guys are in their fifties now and they can sing these songs and they don't age at all. You know I mean? It's, it's, it's fantastic. So when I put them on the scales, it's similar to our bad thriller argument. You know, we have these great, great songs and you have some throwaway tracks, but this is solid all the way through. So for me, uh, I'm going to go, my vote is for 10 also. All right. Well, sounds like 10 is the winner here, but to all of those Nirvana fans out there who who thought that uh, that Pearl Jam might have been sellouts, especially in at the 10 album, we still like Nirvana. We we really do. Oh, way more than I thought I would. Yeah. Again, we this has been a wonderful experience to go back and, and revisit this, much like with Def Leppard and much like with Van Halen. I was like, dang, I did not realize how good some of this stuff was. And so uh, please know that we truly love Nirvana. We just love 10 a little bit more. Yeah. Thanks for doing this with me, man. I'm having such a great time. Let's hear from you guys. If you think we're crazy, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook, at Shirley Podcast on Facebook, at Shirley Podcast on Twitter, or send us an email. Yeah. Send us an email to ShirleyPodcast at gmail.com. All right. What do we have coming up? Do we know what we're doing next? Um, I believe next up is Bull Durham versus Major League. So stay tuned for that one. It will be, I can assure you, another close call. We're going to both be gushing over both of these movies. They're both fantastically awesome. And at this still at this moment in time, I cannot tell you which one I can pick is the best. Sounds great. D, thank you. We will see you next time on the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. This isn't a TV show, Josh. <laughs> it's a rock show. <laughs> Turn the lights off. <laughs> All music images and movie clips are used for the purposes of commentary and education in conjunction with the fair use agreement under the U.S. copyright law.